Well, I invite you to take your Bible this morning and look back to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, I've titled this message, Pillars of Our Relationship with Christ, Part 4. John chapter 15, and let me read the text for you. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 25 today. But there Jesus said, you follow along in 1517. These things I command you that you will love one another. And if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. What a tremendous section of scripture. I suppose that all pastors would say that it's a tremendous section of scripture, but we love the word of God. But I think in this section of chapter 14 through 17 could be uh, some of the most precious truth ever to fall off the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all is truth is truth. But there's something about maybe the, the last week of his life and there's something about the last evening of his earthly life and ministry. Now we left off in verse 17 and it's transitionary. Look at it. Jesus said, these things I command you so that you will love one another. That theme of love is transitionary. It looks back on what he has said to us. It looks forward in the text of 18 through 25. Do you remember all that we're saying of this upper room discourse? If you go back to chapter 13, verse 1, as he came into that upper room, it says there in 13:1, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so he begins that entire upper room discourse with, his own love toward us, that he loved his own, and he loved him to the end. He loved him to the max. He loved him to the fullest extent of love. And then you remember in chapter 13 and verse 34, Jesus said in that upper room, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So just as the Father loved the Son, and the Son loved you to the max, He commands you to love one another. If you look over in chapter 15 and verse 10, He said, if you keep my commandments in 15.10, you will abide in my love. And so there that love is in the sphere of obedience. Look at verse 12 of chapter 15. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. 
And then if you glance again at verse 17, these things I command you, that you love one another. And there, you remember a couple weeks back, I gave you, at least out of the New Testament, 40 commands to love one another, to put the one another's in practice all under the framework of love. It is a familiar theme, and when he tells us that in 12 and 17, it is in the present tense. In other words, it's a continuous action. You are to love each other in this flock. You are to sacrifice for each other. The thought is you are to devote yourself to love one another. But beloved, as we step into verse 18, there is what we can call a juxtaposition in the text. There is a a radical change. And the theme of love that's moved all through this upper room discourse dramatically changes in verse 18. You're met quickly with the word hate. In fact, down through this text, running into chapter 16, hate appears seven times in the verses that follow. And so a night of love at least an exhortation to love, turns into a night of hate. And remember that at the end of chapter 14, look there in verse 31. I just remind you, it's Thursday night. It's probably late into Thursday night, maybe moving on to Friday morning. He said the last phrase of 1431, rise, let us go from here. And the thought amongst most scholars is that they literally left that upper room and were making their way east of Jerusalem, down through the Kidron Valley, and of course, he's heading up into the Mount of Olives in a place called Gethsemane, and that's where he would pray, and that's where he would be arrested, that's where Judas would deliver him to the Pharisees, which he had done already that night. So a night of love turns into a night of hate. And the disciples here, beloved, who have been seeking to understand the promises of love and the encouragement and the hope of heaven are now confronted with the fact that while they are loved by God and loved by Jesus Christ, they will be hated by the world And what was true of them certainly would be true of us in the 21st century. I don't have to take you through, but at least in John 7.1, John 7.19, John 7.25, all over John 8, they had already been in the process of seeking to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. So from the very outset of his ministry, as his ministry opened all the way even to this point, They have been hunting him down. They have been persecuting him. They are in motion even this very moment to kill him and persecute him. And so we come to this important text here because we know that the Apostle Paul said that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It was true in this day of our Lord. It was true in that day for the disciples it will be true in our day as believers. In fact, one source that I was reading this week, it's it's quite staggering. It, It said that in 
all of church history, what would you say? How many people have been killed for their faith? But the source would say that in all of church history, about 70 million Christians have been killed for their faith. I mean, certainly we're aware of our own day of atrocity, both in this century, the previous century, hate crimes. Does it not stagger you that 70 million people have been killed for their faith? And by the way, I want you to know that I think that's a conservative number. I don't think that's uh, exaggerated. In fact, I think it's conservative. What's even more staggering than that number, if there is something more staggering, whether you realize it or not, is that two-thirds of the 70 million have been killed after the start of the 20th century. Two-thirds of 70 have been killed after the start of the 20th century, and hundreds of thousands have been killed since 1990. And so here we are, sitting in a comfortable new building. We're grateful for the Lord's blessing to us, but I think you and I both know that there are many issues that surround this globe So you say, why did Jesus put this here in the text? Why does John the Apostle contain this? Because I think he wants you to know, he certainly wanted these disciples to know, that when the Lord Jesus Christ would be removed from the world, the hatred once spewed on him would come out on his disciples. And so, beloved, this is crucial, as I had three families stand up here with three precious children and more children and one, we would say, in the oven. He is preparing the apostles, certainly in this text. He is preparing his disciples. He is preparing us. He is preparing us to stand ready. You say, well, why is it such an important text for us? Well, I think if you glance over to John 16, Jesus said, I have said all these things. Do you see this? To keep you from falling away. To keep you from, the Greek word is scandalizo. To keep you from being scandalized. I'm telling you this so that you won't fall away. And we'll look at that maybe in a couple weeks because they're going to fall away in just a few hours. Remember? They fell away. That's the very same Greek word. They scattered in the garden. So you say, well, why would he tell them a command that I'm telling you these things to keep you from falling away? Certainly they bore the human response, their lack of faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. But they had a momentary setback. And our Lord Jesus, maybe even for past that time, is preparing them. And he may be preparing something for you. There could be martyrs sitting in this church. I mean, I'm not trying to be over the top, but I think the Lord prepared them. I think the Lord is preparing some of us. Have you ever seen somebody fall away? 
to me, it's one of the greatest things I've ever witnessed to watch a young man or a young woman or an older man or an older woman just to drift away. To drift away for reasons. Maybe in this text, they're not abiding in the vine. Maybe they're bearing no fruit. Maybe it's a failure to love one another or maybe in the most immediate context, it's the world in which we live. And some people want to love things of the world, and he's warning them. I'm telling you these things, Jesus said, to keep you. That's his, his prayer from falling away. From, the ideal is from coming to ruin, from irreparing, from, if you will, from sinning in, a, in, in such a way that it becomes disastrous to you, and the world is a powerful tool. Now, we find ourselves here in this text where Jesus is presenting pillars of our relationship with God. He's presenting these pillars of our relationship with God when you abide in Christ and Christ abides in you. And we've already seen, if you go to the next slide, the first four that we've seen all the way running down is this, a relationship established in love. It's a relationship shared in community. We're to love one another. This is what it means to abide. It's a relationship honored in friendship that as you obey him from the heart, he calls you friend. And so he shares that with you. No longer do I call you slaves. No longer do I call you literally third level galley slaves on a ship. You had top slaves, medium slaves, he, he says, this is the bottom rung. He says, but I, I call you friends. And then we finished last week a relationship grounded in sovereignty. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And now this. It's a relationship that we have with God that's forged in hostility. That's where we find ourselves. And this is not an easy message, but I'm so glad you're here. I mean, far from wanting to to ever just play church, and uh, we, we want to prepare you. We want to equip ourselves, don't we, to help in this hostility and this world in which we live. But let me ask you this question. Why is there persecution now? Why was there persecution then? And here's the question. How are you to understand this text this morning? How are you to think biblically, in the midst of a hostile world. And what I want us to look at here is three exhortations, okay, that come out of this text that require us to think biblically in a hostile world, okay? And come, they come to us from the Lord Jesus Christ, so it is an authoritative word, but he wants us to think biblically in a hostile world in other words as he speaks to them about love he now transitions to a world that hates us and I I kind of look at this today I wrote in my notes he's given us like his secrets here that's why maybe some would say this is one of the greatest sections in all of the bible He's wanting to prepare his disciples. He's wanting to prepare you. He's wanting to prepare your children, your grandchildren, for what life may look like soon before us and what it looks like already for many people around the globe. But number one, here's the first exhortation to think biblically. Don't be surprised 
by the world's hatred, okay? Don't be surprised by the world's hatred. Let's pick up the text, verse 18. Jesus says, if, and we call that a conditional clause, and it's not wondering if it is true, it is true. But if the world hates you, and side parentheses, it does, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, he obviously addresses there if the world hates you, and it does, and he says that it's hated me before it hated you. Who is the one hating? Well, you can see it there. It's the world. What is the world? Now, you've been with me for some years through 1 John and now through the Apostle John. This Briefly, there's three different ways to look at the Greek terms of world. I don't need to go into it. Sometimes world is mentioned extensively in the Bible. It just speaks of the physical world in which we live. We live in this world. We live, you would agree, in a physical world. Sometimes that's the word. Sometimes the word world is just the world of humanity. Just the people who live in the world. It means nothing more than that. When it says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He's not talking about the physical creation. That's the first item. He's talking about the world of people, the world of humanity. But in this context here, when he says, If, verse 18, the world hates you, He's speaking there, the Greek term is cosmos, and it always identifies a world in rebellion against God. It is, to say, an organized system of evil, upon which the Word of God tells us that Satan is the ruler of this world. And again, he's talking about that organized system of evil. Now, the Bible, and we'll see in just a moment, says that we are not to love the world. If anyone loves the world, 1 John 2, the love of the Father, what? Is not in him. Now, again, he's not telling us to not love the created world we live in. We've had a beautiful week this week. That's fine. He's not telling you to not love the people who are in the world. But the Apostle John, the same writer, said to not love the world system that's moving towards anti-Christ and anti-God. And so we're not to love the world nor the things in the world. Do you remember that Paul, writing in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 2, says to not be conformed to this, what? World. To this system. To the twisted values of this world. And that world and its system are set against Christ. They're set against his people. They're set against Christ kingdom and satan the bible says is is in control of it and as i mentioned it's anti-god and anti-christ and here's the point jesus is making is don't be surprised by the world's hatred he said please no look again at verse 18 know that it has hated me before it hated you you might ask the question why does the world hate christ I mean, think about the person of Christ. Think about his sinless life. He robbed no banks. He murdered no one. He obviously slandered no one. So why does it hate Christ? Well, it says in John 7, 7, it hates me, Jesus said, because I testify about it. He said that its works are evil. In other words, it hated Christ, John 7, 7, because he spoke and witnessed that its works, their deeds are evil evil. And so here, the world hates Christ. The world hates us because we condemn it morally. 
Do you remember back in John chapter 3 that the judgment is this, that light has come into the world and people love the what? The darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And so here Jesus says, don't be surprised by the world's hatred. In other words, he's, he's trying to help you. He's trying to help me. Don't be surprised by the world's hatred. In fact, look at verse 19. If you, speaking again to those who were gathered around him, were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so there you can see that the believer is not of this world. And so it hates us. It hates Christ. It hates the people who are associated with Christ. But here in 19, you can see it there. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But the issue is we're not of this world. Would you look over in John chapter 17 just for a moment? He said this in his high priestly prayer. Follow the language closely. He says in 1714, I have given them, he's praying, your word. And the world has hated them. And here's why. Because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And so... Don't be surprised if you glance down at John chapter 17, look at verse 16, very similar. He says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. It's interesting, in verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Beloved, enough for us to say that this world is not our home. We live in the world, but we are not of the world. The Bible tells us that we're aliens. The Bible tells us that we're strangers. The Bible tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. And we are not only out of step with the world, but we are even really out of place in the world. The believer and those in the world have a completely different focus. They operate under a completely set of different orders, if you will. The world and the believers serve different kings. They have different values. They have a different agenda. And so I think Jesus is just trying to say, listen, if you're feeling the heat, and some of you may be, it's because you're not of this world. And some people just hate you because you're associated with Christ. In fact, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, I think this will come up. They, John writing in the first epistle, are not from the world. Therefore, speaking of unbelievers, they're from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world. And the world actually listens to them. We, though, are from God and whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I think he's giving apostolic authority there of the words that would become true to Scripture. In other words, we're not of this world. In fact, look at verse 19 back in chapter 15 again. 
on the backside of 19, he said, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So this is interesting. We are in the world, but we are not of the world, that though we live in it, Christ has chosen us out of the world. Now, I suppose I could take you to many different places of people who've been martyred in the last 10 years and show you what's happening for the cause of Christ and the hatred towards the world, towards believers in certain places. But maybe I could just go another way. A Christian, one said, may be persecuted at work just for refusing to cheat a customer. That may be a little bit more tangible. Just refuse to cheat a customer because of the policy of a business that wants to make more money. One said that a Christian police officer was not promoted for years because quietly but firmly he refused to participate in the commanding officer's addiction to alcohol. And only when a senior officer heard of the problem was it overcome and to the Christian's credit, he was not the one who brought it to light. Just don't have the camaraderie with the world and tell them that you're a believer and see what happens. Okay? But lots of problems could come. A Christian working in a warehouse, discovering that merchandise had been damaged after its arrival, refused to sign slips that said the goods had arrived in a defective condition. He was unceremoniously shunted to another department. I mean, just act like a believer. You don't have to be martyred, but just start speaking and, and be truthful and live with integrity, and we'll find out what people think of you. I mean, the irony of such treatment is that a believer's integrity is prized when it's in the company's favor, but it's despised when it stands in the way of profits and camaraderie. Just stick up for the person of Christ, and you'll understand what this means. Do you know that phrase? Birds of a feather, what? Flock together. The truth is, beloved, we just don't flock with the world. The Lord Jesus Christ called you out of the world. In fact, in the language, it's interesting. He called you out of the world to himself. So though you live in it, you're not of it. He chose you out of the world for himself. Paul made this grand statement that we usually quote the beginning of it. Far be it for me to boast in the cross, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the next phrase is this. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He said the world was crucified to me and I myself crucified to the world. In other words, once he came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, he looked at what he once left as a crucifixion that he left a long ago. And I think what Jesus is just telling the disciples is, listen, don't be surprised if the world hates you. It hated me. Paul said in Philippians 2 to be blameless. He told us to be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you... Shine as lights in the world. 
That's our objective, to shine as a light in the world. In fact, Peter said, don't be surprised. But don't be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. Listen, I think Jesus is just preparing us. He's preparing our children. He's preparing our grandchildren. Who knows what could happen in this culture. In fact, I read an article. I was kind of like, I mean, we know it's been around about the chip being inserted into people and the chip being inserted into dogs and the chip, you know, the, to track all your finances and to track all your bank accounts and to track all your health accounts. But, you know, I, I, what I didn't know is people are having that inserted into their hand, a chip, in Berlin already. And people are testing that. Far from testing it, human beings are doing it. And in the day of everything needing to not uh, lose its security... You wonder how that will work in the, in the days ahead. But Jesus just said here, don't be surprised by the world's hatred. John the Apostle, if you write this one down, said in 1 John 3.13, he said, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. So Jesus said, number one, biblically, I want you to think biblically, don't be surprised by the world's hatred. If it hated me, it's going to hate you. Secondly, to think biblically, don't forget the Savior's principle. Don't forget the Savior's principle. Look at the text in verse 20. Just follow it. Jesus, and he's telling them this. They're walking somewhere through Jerusalem, or maybe they stop. But he said, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, and again, they have. They will also persecute you, and if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Here is a principle. It's a principle of the Savior, and he doesn't want you to forget. And he didn't want the disciples to forget. And the principle is this, expect to be treated as I was and am treated. In other words, we call this an if-then principle. If they persecuted me... They are going to persecute you. If they've kept my word, they will keep your word. And the thought here is in the present. I want you to keep remembering this. Don't forget the Savior's principle. Now, you'll, you'll note again, look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. Well, when did he say that? Well, he's already told him something of that. Let me show you. Just turn back a couple chapters. It's in John chapter 13. He's reminding them of what he's already told them. Well, what did he say earlier that night? Well, earlier that night, he said in John 13, in verse 16, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Uh, in other words, here's the principle. Servants don't expect different treatment than the master is the thought. Now, obviously, John 13 here is an example of selfless service. It's an example here of foot washing. And the point would be that if the master washes the feet of the disciples, then it's ludicrous for his disciples to scramble for preeminence amongst one another. If I washed your feet, you're to wash another's feet. And the principle here would be, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. I mean, if Jesus, beloved, being altogether lovely, does not escape the world's persecution, 
then we will not either. If they hated him, they will hate you. If they keep his word, then they'll, they'll, they'll keep the word that you give to them as well. You say, Scott, what's the issue here? Why does the world hate? Well, their deeds are evil, but look back in John 15. Let me just show you the text here. The issue becomes clear, I think, in verse 21, where it says, but all these things, Jesus said, they will do to you, watch this, he tells us, on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. They're doing this on the account of Jesus' name. So what does that mean, on the account of his name? You can go back and listen to John chapter 112 off the web and hear a fuller exposition of that. But it just means this. They do this because of me, is the thought. On the count of my name, somebody's name was a description of their whole person. They do it because of me. In other words, beloved, let me just help you understand this principle. People hate us not because of who we are, but because of who he is on the account of his name. In fact, in Acts 4.18, they called them, Peter and John, and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. In other words, the persecution comes because it's a refusal of the person of Jesus Christ. Look again at 21b. He says there, he said, on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And so here, we're persecuted because of the person of Christ. But listen, if you, you don't have to be. And if you're not, you may want to look in this morning. But if you're willing to open your mouth and share, not caustically, not rudely, but just honestly and sincerely, sincerely out of the love of Christ, then it might cost you something. My wife was just telling me um, know, a couple weeks back, she was in a store, and uh, <laughs> she's in a store, and the person there was displaying something. And what he was displaying was these things called, have you ever heard of them? Cutco knives. And so he's out there and he's got a display going. And, and we had somebody, when we moved into a home here in Kingsburg, they got us a gift and they got us a Cutco knife. And my wife would say, oh, Scott, that's easily the best knife we have in the drawer. I mean, these things are just finely made, finely crafted. And so she's in a store and the man has got a display of Cutco knives and my wife walked by and he began to engage her in a conversation and I said, how'd it go, Patty? He says, well, about 15 minutes. He was showing me a hunting knife that I ought to get for our son, my son Kyle, who's the medical doctor. He loves hunting and he's showing him the Cutco hunting knife. He, he asked her what she likes to do and my wife bakes bread or banana bread and he showed him a banana bread knife and I said, Patty... How long did you talk to this guy? Oh, Scott, 15 minutes. I go, wow. So that's my sweet wife. She would talk. But she walked away and felt convicted that he had shared 15 minutes about his knives. And obviously, cut coats and knives are good. And my wife came back 
And she asked him, she said, I just want to know, you were so kind to share with me about these knives, but I just want to ask you if you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the man's face visibly moved, and here's what he said. Don't ever talk to me about him. Don't ever talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he said, this is my sweet wife. (laughs) How dare you bring up his name to me? He said, I like you, but I won't like you very long after this conversation. And it's an older man. Listen, just open your mouth. You don't have to be a martyr. But, but just go back to somebody and ask them that question and you'll see how harsh people can become. How dare you come at me with that? Say, so why, why? Why? It's the name of Christ. Why is it that the beautiful Savior, why is it the one who never sinned, why is it the one who only did a good? Why is it that the one who touched the leper and he was cleansed? Why after he touched the woman who was bleeding for 12 years and spent all of her money at the hands of the doctor, would somebody respond like that? Huh. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. In fact, look at the text again. On account of my name, you can underline that. That's what it is. It's his person. Because they do, this is a huge phrase in 21. They do not, what? Know him who sent me. In other words, they don't know God. And because they don't know God, they don't know that God sent me. It's a pretty bold statement because there's a lot of religious people in the world. There's a lot of religious people persecuting and killing a lot of Christians in the world. But Jesus is so bold, and I I love that, because they do not know him who sent me. They don't know the God overall. In fact, look just at the next chapter in chapter 16. They, and I'm in verse, well, 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. In other words, if you know the Father, you know me. So our Lord here, do you understand, is just wanting us to think biblically. Number one, don't be surprised by the world's hatred. Secondly, don't forget the Savior's principle, okay? And then thirdly, don't forget man's guilt and God's sovereignty. And it would appear to me we're out of time. We'll pick that up next time, okay?